Welcome to this edition of Code Talk, the concise podcast to help you get to know the National Electrical Code. I'm your host, Frank Seiler, based in Spokane, Washington. Beautiful sunny day, but crisp. It's mid-February. Today's episode covers a few highlights of the remaining parts of Article 250 that we have not yet touched on. So essentially, this is the uh, the wrap-up to our grounding and bonding portion of our series. And so for today's episode, we will take a look at the last three parts, Roman numeral parts of Article 250, and pick out a few highlights. Part 7 is entitled Methods of Equipment Grounding Conductor Connections. And there are a few items in here that are worthy of our attention. 250.130 tells us that if we have a separately derived system, right, we're coming off of either a full isolation transformer or a transfer switch that switches the neutral with a generator or perhaps the generator is your only source of supply that's permanently installed. All three of those examples would give us a system that um, requires grounding again. What requires grounding? Well, the grounded conductor or the conductor that we are going to turn into the grounded conductor will require grounding. So that's either going to be the neutral in most cases, that's the neutral of our system if it is a grounded system. There are some systems that might be just a line voltage, straight 120 without a neutral. Right, Neutral is a midpoint between two parts of a winding or three parts of a winding. So if, it's, uh, if it doesn't have a midpoint, then we will pick one side and make that the grounded conductor. Anyway, the requirement for grounding of those electrical systems sits in 250.130. There are also some rules in there that deal with non-grounding receptacle replacements and branch circuit extensions. So one of the things that uh, is kind of obscurely hidden in this section, 250.130c, is how to provide a ground to receptacles that are not grounded. Of course, in 406.4d, we have the permission to use a GFCI to then put three wire receptacles, grounding type receptacles downstream, but that does not create a ground. What if we actually really want a ground, but the house is wired in knob and tube? We are permitted to run an equipment grounding conductor externally and connect it to any of the following, any part of the grounding electrode system, any accessible point on the grounding electrode conductor, or the equipment grounding terminal bar in the enclosure where the branch circuit originates, an equipment grounding conductor that's part of another branch circuits that originates from the same enclosure as the branch circuit that doesn't have a ground. And those are, those are the options that are available to us, or even the service equipment enclosure. There used to be another item in here. It's not been here for a long time. That is, we used to be able to take a, you know, just a a green wire, pop it out of the box and run down to the nearest cold water pipe. And you might run into an older house where they've done that. That is no longer part of this list. 
250-134 and 136 give some rules about the types of equipment grounding conductors to be used. And it refers us back to 250.118. I talked about that in our previous episode. But it also says that if we have equipment mounted to a metal structure or framework, and the metal structure is grounded by an approved method, then the bolted-on equipment is considered to also be grounded. All right, so we might have a an H-frame or a rack sitting, you know, planted outside somewhere. And as long as the H-frame itself is grounded, anything that we mount to it with metal-to-metal surface contact is also considered to be grounded. Next, we have 250.140, and that takes a a bit of consideration. It's for frames of electric ranges, wall-mounted ovens, counter-mounted cooking units, clothes dryers, and outlet or junction boxes. And the way their code reads now is that we would have a separate neutral and a separate equipment ground. So that is the current requirement. However, for many, many years, we had the permission to run three-wire systems if we were coming off of the main service panel, and we grounded the frame of the range or grounded the frame of the dryer through the neutral. Of course, there's some obvious problems with that. If the neutral is lost, that connection is lost somehow, now your frame will be energized, and that's uh, that's not a good day in the neighborhood. So there is an exception that still exists for those installations where the grounding is done through the neutral three-wire range three-wire dryer if we replace the range or dryer that we are able to continue on with the method that was previously employed and it gives some uh, specific rules for that but if it's a new installation of course we would have to use a four-wire for our range or our dryer the one thing to be careful of is when we install a range or dryer and it's set up for a three-wire system, which means that the neutral and ground are bonded together in the frame of the range, and we put it on a four-wire system, we have to remove that bond, or vice versa. If the ranger dryer comes from the factory set up as a four-wire system, and then we connect it to an existing three-wire system that we connect ground and neutral together in the junction box at the back of the range or dryer. 250.142 is entitled Use of Grounded Circuit Conductor, most often the neutral, for grounding of equipment. And here distinguishes between the service side, that is the unprotected side of a wiring system, versus the protected side after an overcurrent device. And so we are permitted to use the neutral to provide grounding, On the line side of the main disconnect, this would also apply to the line side of a separately derived system disconnect, but it's generally prohibited on the load side where a separate equipment grounding conductor would be required. 250.146 is entitled Connecting Receptacle Grounding Terminal to an Equipment Grounding Conductor. And there are a few little nuggets in here that sometimes get tested, And at times, we might see an installation go, huh, I don't think that's done right. And perhaps it's using one of these these exceptions. So first of all, any bonding jumper, you know, green wire that goes from the box to the receptacle, if it's of the wire type, has to be sized in accordance with table 250.122. Here's what I've seen at times. 
Perhaps the installation is wired in MC cable or in some other metallic wiring method where the raceway or the cable jacket is used as a ground to the metal box. And then a dryer or range plug is installed. And somebody uses a factory-made equipment grounding conductor or jumper, right? Uh, one of the, the bundle of 25 or 50 that you get from the supply house. Well, those are 12-gauge. If we've got a range or a dryer, that's going to require a 10-gauge ground. 250.122 applies. There are also considerations for receptacles that are in a metallic surface-mounted box. Right? For example, you might have a raised cover with a set of duplex receptacles on a four-square. And in that case, there's a, a couple of a couple of rules. First of all, the device would have to be attached with at least two screws to be counted as grounding. And the cover mounting holes have to be located on a flat, non-raised portion of the cover. In that case, we can do away with the green wire. No need for it. Subsection D also explains how to properly install isolated ground receptacles. Isolated ground receptacles are typically installed for the reduction of electromagnetic interference on the equipment grounding conductor. And so what we're able to do is take a separate equipment ground that isn't attached to the boxes anywhere from the source of the power, which could be an upstream panel board, or even if it's through a sub-panel, even further back than that, without touching the case or grounding terminals of the sub-panel or the other, uh, other junction boxes, etc. We do have to provide grounding for those, but an isolated ground receptacle will have a separate equipment grounding conductor that goes to just the grounding terminal on the receptacle. And so subsection D here explains exactly the permissions that we're able to use to be able to provide that clean ground to the isolated ground receptacles. 250.148 describes a need that we have to have for continuity of equipment grounding conductors and attachment in boxes. So our, there are two things here. If we've got a wiring method that has an equipment grounding conductor where the conductors are spliced in the box and the box is metal, we have to hit the box with that grounding conductor as well. Also, we have to ensure that the removal of any device in that box is not going to disrupt the continuity of the equipment grounding conductor. And sometimes you've seen this, you'll have a homeowner perhaps that has wired uh, receptacles, right? They got two chunks of uh, 14.2 or 12.2 Romex coming into the box and they wire to a receptacle and you know, the hot and the neutral, they've tied through on the receptacle, right? Use all the screws that are available. But you notice how many screws are there for the grounding conductor. There's just one. <laughs> In other words, we have to pigtail out the ground. You can't run through the device. You can't put two grounding conductors on the same device. It has to be pigtailed out so that if we were to take the device out, we don't disrupt the equipment grounding conductor downstream. Part 8 is entitled Grounding for DC Systems. And the, uh, the section here... Um, is a little bit different than what we would consider for AC systems. There's some similarities. The way that I tell people to remember where the rules are is if you know where the grounding rules are for AC systems, those rules are on the whole table 250.66. Just add 100 to that. 
and you get to 250.166. That's not a table, but you also want to look at the surrounding paragraphs. So in 250.162, it starts with direct current circuits and systems to be grounded. If it's a two-wire direct current system, then it's required to be grounded above 60 volts. And if it's a three-wire DC system, then the neutral conductor in that three-wire DC system is required to be grounded. And that might seem a little funny to have a neutral, but what that entails is you've got a positive voltage and a negative voltage, and then you have a current-carrying conductor that sits, that floats in between, um, and that's called a, a bipolar system, nothing you need beds for, a bipolar system, one with a positive, one with a negative voltage in relation to ground, and that neutral conductor becomes the grounded conductor. How is it sized? Well, generally, it's sized for the largest conductor in the system. So we match the size of the largest conductor in the system. A two-wire DC system, that's whatever size your, your ungrounded conductor is. And in a three-wire DC system, sometimes the neutral is larger. If the neutral is larger, we make it the same size as the neutral. If it's the same size as the other conductors, or if it's smaller than the other conductors because of a load calc, we make it the size of the largest phase conductor. Now, if that grounding conductor is going to either rod, pipe, or plate, or a concrete encased electrode, or a ground ring, what can happen is that our, our size that 250.162 dictates is larger than what would normally be required for that type of grounding system. So rod, pipe, or plate only requires it to be a number six, even if the rest of the math gives us a bigger number. A concrete encased electrode, also known as a Eufer ground, never has to be larger than number four. And ground rings, connection to that never has to be larger than a ground ring is. Typically, that's two-gauge copper that surrounds the building at 30 inches of depth. So if it's a standard ground ring, you never have to be larger than a two-gauge, even if your premise source would give you a larger number. Part nine is entitled instrument meters. And what can we say there? Well, generally, meters that are instrumentation meters that are in an enclosure, right? they're on a secondary part of a circuit to give you, you know, power factor or phasing or um, you know, voltage, current, etc., and a piece of switchgear. Uh, those shall be grounded. There is an exception for the secondary circuits of uh, three-phase delta circuits. The equipment has to be grounded, but there's no good grounding point in a three-phase delta, and so that uh, that falls away. And also the minimum size of grounding conductor for this instrumentation is 12 gauge. Part 10 is entitled over 1,000 volts, and the requirements here are for single-point grounding and permissions for multi-point grounding. If we're used to working below 1,000 volts, we, we do something called single-point grounding. We take one point where the neutral and ground connect, and that's the only place that that happens. So there's in over 1,000 volts, there is permission to do that differently. There's also a number here that sometimes gets tested, and that is what is the smallest opacity that a neutral conductor may be over 1,000 volts? And the rule is that it shall not be less than one-third of the capacity of the phase conductors. Also, distribution systems, stationary or portable power uh, substations, 
they have to have their equipment grounded. 250.194 covers the grounding of uh, fencing, structures, etc. that protect these substations. Right? You're not going to plant something that operates over 1,000 volts uh, for ready access to the public. And so generally it's going to have uh, fencing that's required around it. And while this is outside of the wheelhouse for most of us, as you look at the requirements, you see that the main purpose is to reduce voltage potentials in case of a downed hot high voltage lines. So there's some rules for the fencing uh, to be grounded at least every 5 meters or 16 feet were exposed, and that includes things such as the fence corners, bare overhead conductors that cross the fence, gates, gate openings, um, so that they're bonded together, so that when you open the gate, it doesn't disrupt the grounding in any way. The uh, grounding grid that surrounds the substation has to be extended to cover the swing of all the gates, especially if they swing outwards. That's something that's sometimes forgotten. And even the barbed wire strands that are above the fence have to be bonded to the grounding electrode system. And there are alternate designs, but those always have to be performed under engineering supervision for the bonding of these structures. So, there it is. We have clawed our way through Article 250 bit by bit. All right, now I want to say thank you so much for listening. Next week, we will backtrack just a smidge to Article 242, overvoltage protection. Now, this used to be in Articles 280 and 285, known as surge arrest and surge protection in a former life of the NEC. But the 2020 NEC, which by now most states have adopted, recombined this article and turned it into Article 242. So if you're still in the 2017 code, that's where you're going to find it. But it now resides in Article 242. We skipped over that in our initial installment. We'll backtrack and catch that next week. So if you found this episode on a site other than our website, I encourage you to please go to www.inw-training.com for the lecture notes for this and other episodes. And usually I get them up within a couple of days of posting the episode. I also want to remind you of our monthly feature, and that is code answers to questions from our listeners. You can find the button to leave your code question right on the front page of our website. Until then, please take care. Thank you so much for listening. This is your host, Frank Seiler, signing off from Spokane, Washington.